be seated. Please keep your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 19. Ezekiel 19. We are in Ezekiel 18 and 19 this evening, but I am going to actually preach Ezekiel 19 first, and then I'm going to preach Ezekiel 18. We'll, we'll, we'll get through them both, but we're going to start in 19. 18 is where we find our application this evening. Ezekiel 18 is a, is a unique chapter in, in the book of Ezekiel. It's bookended by prophetic parables meant to illustrate Israel's sinfulness. You know what I mean there by this chapter being bookended? Uh, for Christmas, I got some lovely bookends. And I take those bookends and I have a bunch of books. And I take those lovely bookends and I put one on one side of the books and I put one on the other side of the books. And so it is on either side of the books are these lovely bookends. And so when I say that Ezekiel 18 is bookended, what we see, we recall from last week in Ezekiel 17, a parable. You, re you remember, don't you? There were things flying all over the screen, eagles and nuts and um, vines and branches and other eagles, some pretty and colorful, others kind of bland, but still great eagles and all of those things. It was a bit pictorial as we looked last week, and, and the focus of last week's sermon was on humility as we see the prophecy of Jesus Christ, that righteous branch who would begin very small and grow into a great tree. Now on the other side of Ezekiel 18 and in Ezekiel 19, we see a parable of some lions, and we'll start there this evening, looking at that parable, understanding that parable, and then I'd like us to come back to that chapter that is in between these two parables. One of the eagle and the trees, the other of the lioness and her whelps. And understand some tremendous truths from Ezekiel 18. Truths which um, in Ezekiel's day were foreshadowing that economy that you and I are living in today. Are foreshadowing um, the very nature of our lives and our disposition toward God today. And as always, as we look at words of strong judgment... We will also be looking at words of great, great mercy. So we begin in Ezekiel 19 this evening. And I'd like to read just a few of these verses for you. 19 verse 1 says, Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, and say, What is thy mother? A lioness. She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. And she brought up one of her whelps, it became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken into their pit, and they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. Now when she, that's the lioness, saw that she had waited and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. And he went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devoured men. And he knew their desolate places, and he laid waste their cities, and the land was desolate, and the fullness thereof, by the noise of his roaring. Then the nation set against him on every side from their provinces, and spread their net over him, and he was taken into, in their pit. And they put him in the ward in chains, and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holds, that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel." In Ezekiel chapter 19, verse 1, we see this phrase, Take thou up a lamentation for the princes 
of Israel, these being the kings that God had allowed to rule over his people. I make this distinction this evening, and I'd like you to take note of it, because several weeks ago, in Ezekiel chapter 12 and 13, I had mentioned that that, uh, as God was taking up a lamentation for a prince in Israel, this was Zedekiah at the time, that Zedekiah was called a prince in Israel, and I specifically mentioned that he was called a prince because he was actually an illegitimate king. He was a vassal king, so God would not even regard him as a king but a prince. I'd like to backtrack on that statement this evening. As we mentioned that before, um, I do not believe that is the case anymore. As I have continued to study and I've looked at other areas where God has spoken to the princes of Israel, we see in this passage that there are two kings in Israel who were indeed legitimate kings that God still calls princes in Israel. We see the 70 rulers as being called princes in Israel. And as we continue, we will also see another instance where a legitimate king over Israel is called a prince. And so whereas I had mentioned before that he was called a prince because he was an illegitimate king, I now do not assert that. I want to correct myself there and state that he was called a prince because he was a king. He was a ruler in Israel. And so it was a more generalized term for a ruler that is being used. Perhaps it is in part because God saw himself as king or sees himself as king. However, we will also see, as we get a little bit farther in Ezekiel, an instance where there is a king of another city outside of Israel that's called a prince. And so perhaps it is that God is is speaking generally of all rulers as princes in order to assert himself as king. In that passage, in fact, he's the prince of Tyre, and the king of Tyre is actually Satan. And so there is another instance where we see a king above the prince, where the, the earthly ruler is actually seen as second in command to the spiritual ruler, whether that's Satan or whether that's God. And so I make that correction this evening, and uh, this is what we do when we read the Bible. We are reading the Bible and we come across something and we, we seek to understand it and we make an assertion and we have a belief and then as we're reading the Bible, perhaps more information is gained. We understand something a little bit better and we must be humble enough to backtrack, to correct our thinking and to move on with proper thinking. And, and this, is, this is not something that should be Uh, surprising to us when it happens because we're fallible, we're human. Your pastor is fallible and he's human and he's going to read things and he's going to see things and he's going to understand things and then he's going to learn more and he's going to to understand things a little bit differently. So that's what what I'm asserting this evening as far as my understanding is concerned now. uh, I'd like to broaden the concept of the prince to earthly rulers under a spiritual king or under a spiritual leader, whether that's Satan or God. So this lamentation is directed toward the leaders in Israel, the kings of Israel, the princes is what it says in verse 1, and it is indeed plural. And God asks a question of them. He says to uh, these people, what is thy mother? And he immediately answers, a lioness. God says she shall lay down among the lions and nourish her whelps. Well, immediately we understand that the, this group that God is talking to, 
He asked them, what is thy mother? Which means these leaders in Israel, these princes in Israel would be her children, correct? And so this lioness is said to be the mother of the princes in Israel. And so as she's laying down among the nations and she's nourishing her whelps among the young lions, what we are understanding is that this mother, this lioness, is nourishing the princes of Israel among other lions. The picture is that she, as Israel, and that's what we see the lioness to be, Israel has become just like all other nations. She, as a lioness, lays down among all the other lions, among all the other nations, and she nourishes her kings, she raises up kings to be just like the other nations. Just like the other lions are raising up their whelps to become young lions, so too she is raising up her whelps, her baby lions, to become young lions. And this is not a flattering picture. To be called a lion in this sense, to be called a lion among several other lions. There were no longer distinctions between God's people and the nations among them. She was just like all the other nations. In verse 3, the focus changes to these whelps. Verse 3 tells us that one of these whelps learned through his mother how to catch prey and devour men. Now we're starting to see the great negativity that is associated with these lions and their whelps. These lions are going out not just to live, but they are going out to catch prey and to devour men, to destroy men, to kill men. That being the picture of the spiritual corruption found in the nation of Israel at this time. This whelp whelp learned to be ruthless, to be selfish, and to be violent. So violent, in fact, that the other nations, the other lions, caught this lion and brought it in chains to Egypt. Verses 4 and 5 speak of this and speak of the mother waiting for this lion to return. When will this lion return? And when she sees, when the lioness sees that her young lion is gone for good, she took another one of her whelps, another one of her younglings, and made him a young lion. And according to verse 6, he did the same thing. He learned how to catch prey and devour men. So the nations came against this lion as well, it says, and they caught him. And this time they took him to Babylon, never to see Israel again. As you have been reading those allusions, perhaps you recognized the picture of the kings of Israel. The kings being brought down to Egypt. The kings being brought down to Babylon. In 2 Kings 23-34, we see the first of these symbolic lions through the king Jehoahaz. It says, And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. So the first of the kings that Ezekiel is lamenting for is King Jehoahaz, one who had been taken and put in chains 
and brought down to Egypt where he died. Just like this young whelp, risen of his mother, the lioness who is Israel, being raised up of Israel to catch and to devour prey, to be selfish and to be self-serving and to be violent. And God says, I've sent the nations against you and I've got you, I've, I caught you and I caused you to be taken to Egypt. That's, that's King Jehoahaz, 2 Kings 23-34. We see a second lion here. This one being caught, being taught to do the same, being violent, being wicked, being selfish, and being caught and taken to Babylon. Well, this one could be several different kings possible reference either to Jehoiakim or to Jehoiachin. In Second Chronicles 36, we see three successive kings that were taken to Babylon. At the time of Ezekiel's prophecy, King Zedekiah was still on the throne. So most likely we're not speaking of Zedekiah here. But in verse 6 and then in verse 10, we see Jehoiakim taken to Babylon and Jehoiachin taken to Babylon. Either one of these kings or perhaps both of these kings were the symbolic kings that Ezekiel was describing in Ezekiel 19 as to these whelps that were caught to be wicked, devouring lions and then taken to Babylon where each one of these men would eventually die. Recall this is a lamentation. It is a grieving for these kings who were wicked men and who did not obey the Lord. As Ezekiel 19 continues in verses 10 and 11, it says, Thy mother is like a vine. She hath strong rods. Her stature was exalted. Verses 10 through 14 are the conclusion of the lamentation. Weeping for the days when Israel was a strong mother of godly kings, producing men like David, producing men like Solomon, men like Hezekiah and Josiah. Men who feared and loved the Lord with all of their hearts. And that's why this lamentation is there. That's what this lamentation is about. This lamentation is about God through Ezekiel looking at the kings and seeing inferior, wicked kings. And seeing where Israel once was. And seeing the beauty that Israel once was. And the the godly kings that she once produced. And now seeing a wicked nation bringing to bear wicked kings. You know, oftentimes the leaders of a nation are, even in a monarchy, a reflection of the people. And that is the case as we look at, it, at the nation of Israel, particularly in this time in history. The king really was, in many ways, a reflection of his people. Now God says, as opposed to the strong vine that you once were, In verses 13 and 14, she's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. She has no strong rod. She's wilted. She has rebelled against the Lord and encouraged her kings to do the same. That is the lamentation of Ezekiel 19. Notice right at the end of the chapter, he says, this is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. So think with me about the two chapters, one last week, one this week, Ezekiel 17. As Ezekiel described the great eagle who took away the, the, the highest branch of the cedar, but he planted in Lebanon a mighty a, a nut that was to become, or a seed that was to become a mighty tree. But it grew into a humble vine. 
and that humble vine didn't grow toward Babylon as it was intended to do, but rather it grew toward Egypt, and so Babylon tore him out and destroyed him for his rebellion. And then we see the lamentation of 19, where we have these young lions being risen by a wicked, wicked mother, only to be destroyed, put in chains, taken to Babylon, taken away, and God lamenting, if only there was righteousness in this land. And now we turn our attention to Ezekiel 18, where the rest of our time, including our application, will be found. Between these two chapters, Ezekiel 18 will cause a proverb to cease in Israel. This is the second false proverb that God is going to cause to cease in Israel. The first being found in Ezekiel 12. Perhaps you remember that message. In Ezekiel 12, verses 22 and 23, God said this, Son of man, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged and every vision faileth. Tell them therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say unto them, the days are at hand and the effect of every vision. So here Israel had a proverb that said, um, the visions have failed. They, they aren't going to come to pass. And God says, I'm going to make that proverb to just fall away, to cease, because everything's about to come to pass. And now in Ezekiel chapter 18, we have a new proverb. One that's quite different. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this is the proverb that the children of Israel were saying, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set at edge. It's a proverb that's found as well in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30. The underlying idea or implication of this proverb is that the children are suffering for the wrongdoing of their parents. That as their parents ate the sour grapes, the children's teeth are the ones. Have you ever had something sour and it's kind of given you that, that awful feeling in your teeth? Or if you have sensitive teeth and you've eaten something that's too cold and you have that, that awful feeling when your teeth kind of almost burn or, or tingle or, or pain or whatever it is, uh, it's hard to even describe um, what happens when you have sensitive teeth and you eat something that's very sour, you eat something that's very cold, and your teeth just are extremely sensitive to it. That's the idea, that as the fathers ate the sour grapes, it was the children's teeth that were sensitive to it. In other words, the father's wickedness is being lived out in the children's lives. They are receiving the consequences of their father's wickedness. God says you will have no occasion to use this proverb in Israel. Rather, God uses this chapter to make a definitive statement that is meant to prepare the hearts of God's people for what He had announced in Ezekiel 17. Recall at the very end of Ezekiel 17, He promised the branch, the righteous branch that was coming. And accompanying that righteous branch would be a new way of thinking. New hearts. New minds. A new covenant. And Ezekiel 18 is in many ways a description of the new covenant, this new idea that God is introducing. He says in verses 3 and 4, 
that all souls are His. He says, all souls are mine. As the souls of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul of the Father is His. The soul of the Son is His. And God's statement is that the soul that sins is the soul that dies. Now, as we step into this passage and into God's example this evening, I'd like us to remember a couple of important things about this passage. First is that the context in which it was given was the Mosaic Law. And so we understand that things were a little bit different in God's economy in Israel. The theme of God's statement is individual accountability as contrasted with national or even familial accountability and responsibility. I also want us to remember that when God speaks of the soul as dying, He's not necessarily speaking of man's eternal spirit, but rather his physical life. A man, his, his physical life, as well as perhaps the spiritual implications. Uh, as we think of today, the wages of sin is death, physical death certainly, and spiritual death in separation from God. But we're not speaking about, say, soul sleep. The idea that the soul is going to be abolished or annihilationism that the soul is going to dissipate and disappear and and be non-existent. We know that God has given every man an eternal soul. We all are eternal. We'll either spend that eternity in heaven or we'll spend that eternity in hell. And the Scriptures bear that out quite clearly. So we're not speaking of annihilationism, the idea that wicked people, their souls eventually get consumed. We're not speaking of soul sleep. And we we need to recognize that oftentimes when the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament speaks of the soul dying, it's either that separation from God or it is in fact the physical person that is, is receiving the consequences of their own actions. Since the beginning of the biblical record, there had always been both individual and corporate accountability to God. We know from God's teachings in the New Testament that each man, each woman, and each child, both in the Old Testament and in the New, has always been individually responsible for his response to God in terms of salvation. It has been since the beginning of time that the righteous live by faith and that whoever places their faith in the revealed Word of God is the one who is righteous in the eyes of God. However, we also see, particularly in the Old Testament, regular examples of a corporate relationship with God, whereby a person could experience God's blessings or cursings. We're not talking about eternal life or eternal damnation, but blessings and cursings due specifically to his association with other people. Laban is a good example of this. Jacob came to Laban, Recall, his mother sent him to Laban to find a wife. And Jacob works for Rachel. He ends up getting Leah. Then he works for Rachel another seven years. And Laban was tremendously blessed because of his association with Jacob. Job's children were blessed because of the righteousness of their father. Israel was blessed because of the righteousness of King David. Israel received national atonement every year as a nation when the high priest would go into the holiest of all and would make an atonement for them on the Day of Atonement. And so we see that the nation was blessed 
because of the actions of the high priest on that day. There has always been a relationship whereby there is a mediator between God and man. And so as we understand this relationship, it was within the the mind of the nation of Israel, this concept that the soul that sins is not necessarily the soul that dies, but sometimes the son dies for the father's sin. And in a national sense, in a consequences sense, there's something to that. But, see, God had just announced the righteous branch. The one who would come as a branch in Israel and would grow to be a great tree. And as God announced this righteous branch, see, everything was going to change when this righteous branch came, wasn't it? Whereas we saw with Job, he was really the patriarch of his family. He was the one that was making intercessions for his family. He was the one that was offering sacrifices for his family. And then as we get into the New Testament law, we begin to see the high priest be that mediator between God and man. And then something happened. The righteous branch came. And he died on the cross. And what happened in the temple on the day Jesus Christ died on the cross? What happened in the holiest of all the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross? On that day, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies rent from top to bottom. And so now there was no longer a physical human mediator between God and man. There was no longer a man on earth responsible to mediate between God's people and God. Every soul would now bear his own responsibility, accountability, and have the privilege of his own relationship with God. Now recall, we're not speaking of salvation here. We're speaking of that corporate relationship. Historically speaking, the appearance of the Messiah was on the horizon at this point. Not only had there just been a prophetic announcement in Ezekiel 17 of the appearance of Messiah, but the temple was going to be destroyed in a matter of years. And then it would just be a matter of a few hundred years more until Messiah was going to come. That's, that's like this in God's um, history. It's coming quickly. Messiah is on His way. And God was preparing the hearts of the nation of Israel for this dispensation where each man would stand before God individually. There would no longer be a mediator between God and man save the man Christ Jesus. No familial, no national blessings or cursings. God was no longer going to work through a family. He was no longer going to work through a nation. He was going to work through a kingdom of priests. A holy nation of peculiar people called His church. And so things were going to change dramatically. And of course, God will pick up with His program with Israel in the end times. But those are the end times. Those are the last of days. That will be the final culmination of this earth. No longer God necessarily working as He's been working in in generations past. So God's message to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18 and to to the people through Ezekiel was intended to be divine preparation for a mindset of absolute individual accountability before God. So let's talk about this chapter together. Let's begin reading in verse 5. But if a man be just 
and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the nakedness with a garment. He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any one of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but hath eaten upon the mountains, and defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now, lo, if he beget a son, and that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done, and considereth, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor hath defiled his neighbor's wife, uh, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, that hath taken off his hands from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. So God gives a three-generation example to illustrate the individual accountability of every man before God. The first man is described as a man who is righteous, who does those things which bear about the fruit of righteousness in his life. He's a righteous man. He does righteous things. And, he, and God says, this man shall live because he is righteous. And then He says, but this man has a son. This son is not righteous. This son does not obey the Word of God. This son does not have faith in God. This son does not care about the things of God. This son will not be getting a pass because his father was a righteous man. This son will die because the soul that sinneth it shall die. Now, there has always been that element of recognition in the individual accountability before God unto salvation. But in a national mindset and in a familial mindset, this was a pretty interesting idea. No longer would God say, for David's sake. No longer would God say, for my servant's sake. Haven't we already seen this warning already? God told the the nation or the, the city of Jerusalem, even if Job and Noah and Daniel were in the city, they alone would be spared. The city would not be spared. Not like in the days of Lot, where Abraham got God down to ten people. If there were ten people in the city, couldn't that city be spared? 
Now the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Then he speaks of a grandson. The son's son. And he says this son's son, this grandson sees the wickedness of his father and doesn't want to go in that direction. And so he does that which is right. He does that which is lawful. He does that which is good. He says this son will live. He will not die for his father's sin. He shall live, but his father shall die. As we continue in the passage, verses 19 through 22 speak of the condition upon which the wicked repents. Notice what he says, Yet say ye, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of his father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live, God says. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him in his righteousness that he hath done he shall live. And so God describes this condition whereby if the wicked repents, he'll live. If the wicked repents of his way, he shall live. Verse 24 also speaks of the righteous repenting. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. God, as this chapter completes, God again emphasizes that the souls that sin shall bear its iniquity, and God will judge. He calls upon them to repent of their transgression so that they may live. Now you notice perhaps in my outline that's on the screen behind you, verse 23 is skipped. It goes 19 to 22 and then we see verse 24. I did indeed skip 23. I didn't overlook it, however. Verses 23 and 29 we'll come back to in just a few moments. Let's read the final verses here in this chapter. Beginning in verse 25, he says, Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, committeth iniquity, and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and hath and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive, because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgression that he hath committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, saith Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. 
Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Do you see how God is setting up this new economy? The soul that sinneth it shall die only as the righteous branch comes. He is going to take that death upon Himself. I refer you back to Ezekiel 18.23. God said, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Israel was a nation that had pleasure in the death of those whom they considered to be wicked. In their carnality, they had strongly imposed their vindictive hearts upon the character of God. And they believed that God Himself had pleasure in the death of the wicked. But God states something very important about His character here. Something that we need to take very deeply to heart. That He has absolutely no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He will say the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his wicked way, or from his way, excuse me, and live. Then he says, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And this is the heart of God. Apart from the confused theology of, of some churches today, which states that the destruction of the wicked is the utmost glory and will of God. God states very clearly in Ezekiel that His heart longs for the repentance of every man. His heart longs that no man would be destroyed. And when a wicked man is destroyed, he has no pleasure in it. None at all. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says it this way, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, the delay of God's judgment upon this world, this time that we live in now, where we are considered in the last days, and yet judgment hasn't happened yet. Judgment is coming one day, but there's this time, there's this delay say, what's God waiting for? Honestly, what is He waiting for, right? It doesn't have anything to do with Him having forgotten His promises. It doesn't have anything to do with Him having changed His mind. God's delay in judgment is rooted in His desire that all men would repent so that none would die and spend eternity in hell. God's long-suffering is His mercy. God's delay is His mercy. And if you're listening under the sound of my voice this evening, as we mentioned even this morning in the sermon, if you know you're a sinner, one who has never been saved, been born again by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you need to know that the only reason why the sun is still rising every day and the sun is still setting every day the only reason why we ticked the calendar over to 2014 a little better than a month ago, the only reason why these things are happening, the seasons are changing from one to another and we can look forward to it warming up a little bit, is so that you would see your sin, that you would see yourself in light of who God is, 
and that you would accept the gift of salvation. That's the only thing that's keeping God from finishing this the history, from finishing everything that He plans to do. The only thing keeping Him there, here, in delaying, is the salvation of the wicked. Praise the Lord for His great mercy. Well, this wicked nation charged God in verses 25 and 29 with something pretty egregious. They said, the ways of the Lord are not equal. May I give that to you in layman's terms? They said, God, that's not fair. God, you're not being fair. What the people had failed to remember is Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. See, they said, God, we're good people and they're not good people. It's not fair that if they repent... This was Jonah's attitude. This is Jonah syndrome. Can we just call it that? This is Jonah syndrome. God, these people are wicked. These Assyrians are wicked. It's no fair that you should have mercy on them. Your ways are not fair. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My ways aren't fair. Do we really want God to be a fair God? God says, do you really want me to be a fair God? Are not my ways equal? Am I not just? They say, God, you aren't fair. It's not fair that the guy who has done good and then becomes bad will suffer the same fate as the one who has always been bad. It's not fair that the guy who has done bad and then becomes good will find the same mercy as the one that has always been good. Shouldn't we be on a sliding scale here where the good outweighs the bad? Shouldn't we be on a sliding scale of justice? Or perhaps a sliding scale where our parents' righteousness is imposed upon our lives as well? So if our parents were good people, then we get to benefit from that as well? And that's really what the nation wanted. They wanted a sliding scale that was fair in their eyes. Where if their good outweighed their bad, they would live really what they wanted is for them to be that exalted nation and everyone else to just crumble and die. It's a blind and foolish request by a self-righteous people. Because this verse tells us that if God's going to be fair, then there's not a man or a woman or a child on this earth that's going to receive anything but judgment from God. That would be a fair God under their foolish desire to which they sought to obtain self-righteousness, they would indeed have been condemned. But God had a much bigger plan in mind. Remember the righteous branch of Ezekiel 17. See, under God's justice, every man would bear his own sin. And that is God's justice today, that every man bears his own sin. And there's a reason why this is so important, that every man bears his own sin. See, if every man were truly to bear his own sin, there would be a problem. But the system would not become man's damnation. This system would become man's salvation. And the reason why is in Galatians chapter 3. Please turn there with me. We switch over to application this evening. As I want you to see why this system is so important. Why is it so important that we are in a system where every man bears his own sin? Why is it so important that no man suffers for the sins of another man? 
why is it so important that there is individual accountability? Galatians chapter 3. In verses 6 through 18, Paul discusses Abraham's relationship with God. He specifically states that Abraham was saved by faith alone. Abraham was not under the Mosaic covenant, Abraham was not circumcised the eighth day, but Abraham was counted as just because he believed the promises of the gospel of God. Paul goes on to say that no man could ever have been justified by the law, even those in Israel, that justification has always been as each man has placed their faith in the revealed will of God concerning the Messiah. So what was the point of the law then? Well, Paul tells us in verses 19 through 22. It says, wherefore, what then, uh, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scriptures hath... Here it is. But the Scriptures hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The law was to be a means of understanding God's expectations for the purpose of showing every man that he is and always will be personally unable to please God. You cannot please God, and you cannot please God, and you cannot please God. I cannot please God. But the law, for all that it exposes our sin, is not meant to be the means of our damnation. It's meant to be the means of our salvation. Because of verse 22, the law shows each one of us that we are under sin, that we are individually accountable to God, that we are all under sin. See, God told the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 18 that each one of them bore exclusive, personal responsibility before God. Far from a curse, Galatians reminds us that this opened the door for Jesus Christ to offer personal salvation to every man. Because every man is responsible for their own sin and Jesus Christ can bear the sins of every man, every man can now receive eternal life through Christ. When we understand our failings, when we see our sin, that when we know our wickedness, when the law shows us our own weakness, this is when God can step in and do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. This is when God can come in and rescue us from our own inability before Him. And this is why Christ came. Just prior to the proclamation of Ezekiel 18, that the soul that sinneth, it shall die, He spoke of the righteous branch that would establish the kingdom. Rooted in the condemnation of every man bearing his own sin is the reality that Jesus Christ bore it for us. So that any man who would accept the gift of Jesus Christ and receive it by faith will be saved from the death that is required by God's justice. Not because he was found righteous. Not because he was found worthy. 
but because Jesus was found righteous and worthy. And this is our application this evening. Three points as we close. You will stand before God and answer for your own sin. God told the nation of Israel that each one of them would bear their sins exclusively. And so too we do. However, when we stand before God as believers, He's going to look down that list and He's going to look at us and He's going to see paid in full. Because though we bear the responsibility for our own sin by our accepting of Christ and His finished work on the cross, we have received the gift of salvation. Praise the Lord that we have all been reckoned dead under sin so that we all might be found alive in Christ. And this is, as we think of this first point this evening, I again remind you that if you have never accepted this free gift of salvation the day you stand before God, know that the soul that sinneth shall die. The soul that sins will pay for its own sins through hell. But Jesus Christ came to take upon Himself the sins that you could not pay for. Jesus Christ came to bear in His own body the penalty that you could not handle that you could not undo in and of your li- yourself. So that anyone who believes on Jesus Christ shall be saved. So you will stand before God and answer for your own sin. The question is, will you stand in Christ's righteousness or will you seek to stand in your own righteousness? Second point this evening. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you? you, like the Galatian believers, fallen into the pit of thinking that you deserve God? Or that you have some merit by which to judge and condemn the world around you? And God says He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But do you have pleasure in the death of the wicked? When you think of a wicked man burning in hell, does it bring you pleasure or pain at a soul which was lost to Satan's deception? When you think of your unbelieving friends or neighbors or family. When you think of unbelievers in our government or in Hollywood or anywhere in the world for that matter. Does the thought of their suffering bring you pleasure? See, it doesn't to God. Scriptures remind us that it's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And until you have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, you do not share God's heart in that matter. It's natural for us as humans to want to see men get what's coming to them. It's natural for us as humans to see those who have hurt us or who are persecuting us or who are working against us or for that matter, working against God 
and to wish terrible things upon them and to wish them to receive the, the recompense of their own wickedness. But that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. And it shouldn't be our heart either. And the reason why it shouldn't be our heart is because of this last point. Because God's not fair. Thank God He is not fair. Could you imagine if God was a fair God? Now, He's a just God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. But could you imagine if God was a fair God? What would a fair God do? when the entire world was lost to sin and on its way to hell, and His perfect, holy, and righteous Son said, I'll bear their sin, what would a fair God have said? Uh-uh. Nope. They're going to get their own. They got themselves into this mess. Let's see them get themselves out of this mess. It's only fair. Why should you have to bear their punishment? Why should you have to bear their pain? Why should you have to bear their shame? Why should you have to bear their guilt? They dug their grave, now let them lie in it. What would a fair God do when you sin and you fall on your knees before Him in forgiveness? He'd say, sorry, you're going to get what you deserve this time. Nope. No, no mercy here. But our God is not fair. He's merciful. Our God is not fair. He's gracious. Our God is not fair. He's loving. He, our God is not fair. He's long-suffering. And as we think about this point, it can well up in our hearts sometimes to look at those who are on their way to hell and say, well, good riddance to them. How self-righteous of us. How self-righteous of us to not want to rejoice when we have something given to us that they don't have, that they need, and to rejoice in their lack of having it. How self-righteous of us to find some sort of satisfaction in them not having received the grace that we have found. How self-righteous of us to think that for some reason because we were one of those that by God's grace have heard and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ that somehow that makes us better than anyone else on this earth. It's really it doesn't. It makes us redeemed by the blood of the Lamb but it has nothing to do with our merit or our goodness or anything in us. It has everything to do with what Christ has done through us. And so as we take these points and apply them, we will indeed stand before God and answer for our own sin. The question is, will we be answering, will, will we be standing in our righteousness or will we, will we be standing in Christ's righteousness? God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, do you? And then finally, have you thanked God lately that He's not fair? Because truly our God is a God that is far more unfair to us than we deserve. <laughs> He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's a long-suffering God. And let's be sure to thank Him for it this evening. Let's pray together.